Well, this morning, I encourage you to turn your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. You should have a little sermon notes page uh, in the bulletin. It's on both sides. It has a little quick summary, a uh, little outline, a little intro, a little, little outline, and some points uh, for you this morning. Uh, if you are visiting, we are, uh, I can't believe it's already nine sermons. This is our ninth sermon uh, in our, in our uh, little series, we'll call it our little series, uh, through the whole Bible. Uh, we're going to be going through it one book at a time. Uh, we spent last year in the Heidelberg Catechism uh, in being instructed in uh, the ways of the Lord and uh, true theology and uh, true piety, uh, what we are to believe, what we are to do, uh, how we are to know our sin and misery, how we are to know even more so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that redeems us from our sin and misery and then we, how we are to be grateful to God for his redeeming grace. Uh, and this year, I'm going to catechize us, teach us through the whole Bible. And so we come this morning to 1 Samuel. So there's no particular passage, but we're going to go through uh, a selected part of the book. You see there an outline uh, on that sermon notes page that gives you kind of the big idea. And then I'm just going to hit some high points throughout and make some uh, observations some applications. And hopefully it's interesting for you. So uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, anyone have a chance to read 1 Samuel this week? Just curious, out of curiosity. Anyone? A couple, a couple of us, all right? Uh, I preached through it a long time ago, so I don't expect you to know that, but uh, quite a while ago, uh, we went through First and Second Samuel, so if you want to go back and listen to those, uh, they're not on our YouTube page. This was uh, pre-YouTube era, uh, Oceanside URC, so you only get to hear the voice uh, of Danny Hyde, so not, not, not the face, but uh, those, are, those are on our sermon audio page, so First Samuel. Well, uh, you probably noticed uh, recently there was a coronation of a king uh, in England, and uh, Apparently, 400 million people across the world tuned in uh, in some way or another. Uh, but uh, the BBC was uh, like lamenting this fact because, you know, back in the day, 70 years ago, uh, when Queen Elizabeth was uh, coronated, even before the internet uh, and before mass productions of televisions across the world, more people were in tune on the radio back in the day. And so they were lamenting uh, how less people watched. Uh, the, uh, uh, her son Charles be coronated. Uh, but, the, but I thought it was kind of interesting that monarchy still attracts an audience. 250 years after the onset of Western liberal democracies, uh, people still tune in to kings being coronated. Now perhaps that's because for us Americans that's a peculiar thing uh, to have a king. Maybe it's because we like soap opera drama and we like all the gossip columns uh, that goes on along with it and uh, this particular king of course and uh, his sons and uh, his particular daughter-in-law, right? And all the, all the drama that goes along, along with that. Maybe that's why we may maybe be interested in that. Uh, the pageantry of it, uh, much different than our uh, kind of simplistic uh, inauguration of a president every four years, very, very, very uh, pageant, uh, full of pageantry in comparison to us. Uh, but perhaps there's something still deep within us as human beings that longs for a king, on earth, who reflects a true king in heaven. Maybe that's why people are interested. Uh, I have to admit, I, I peeked in a little bit. Uh, I, was, I was more interested to see what his vow was going to be. Was he going to vow to uphold the Reformed Christian religion uh, in the Church of England? Uh, or was he going to, as uh, at least when I was a kid, we were always taught, you know, he was sort of the, he, he, he worshiped the earth. Uh, he was the, the, green, uh, the green guy before green was kind of a cool thing. Uh, but there he was, he gave the oath, he gave the vow, 
uh, that he was going to defend all the rights and liberties of the Reformed Christian religion uh, in England. So uh, there's a prayer, in fact, in the Psalms that goes something like this. Uh, Psalm 72, this is a prayer and a psalm of Solomon, and uh, no doubt at his coronation, he was praying that the heavenly true king would invest him uh, with with uh, true kingship. He, he prayed, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. That's what a king was to do. He was to uphold true justice and true righteousness for all uh, his people and to free people from oppression. Now, for us Americans, we're going to have to wait for that uh, to come true until the heavenly king does return uh, to be our earthly king. Until then, uh, we'll be stuck with our presidents, okay, and our vice presidents and all their cabinets and all, the, uh, all that fun stuff every four years. So, uh, now, but that brings up this, that the Old Testament, as we go through it, is, uh, is a different world than our world. The Old Testament is a different world than our world that we experience every day. But way back when, in the garden, we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, humanity was given earthly dominion by Elohim, by God, to rule in his name for his glory, to have dominion and to, and to take control of it all. After the fall, though, this dominion that we as human beings uh, were created to have was turned on its head for the self-aggrandizing egos and pleasures of men. We saw this way back when in Genesis chapter 4. Lamech took two wives. Already at that early time in history, taking two wives contrary to God's creational pattern. And he said to those wives, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Remember remember what Lamech went on to say? If Cain gets seven times revenge for anyone killing him, what do I get? like 77 times or uh, seven times seven uh, times just for someone touching me right someone wounded me so he was a tyrant we saw he was a tyrant we went through genesis what uh, was it last year or the year before year before yeah year before so uh, you can go back and listen to that if you'd like well genesis 6 uh, encourage you to go listen to what we said about uh, the b'nai elohim uh, the sons of god and i described them as demonically inspired Tyrant kings, early in Genesis chapter 6. Like Lamech, they took as many wives as they chose, and they had children. And those children were described as very strange figures, the Nephilim, these giants, and Gibberim, these mighty men, these warrior men. Uh, But with the coming of the Lord's covenant with Abram, we have a promise of kings, interestingly, in Genesis uh, 17. So, God created humanity to be like kings on earth, reflecting him, the heavenly king. Uh, We, after our sinfulness and into our fallenness, have uh, completely obliterated human power and might. We see it all around us every day. But yet, the Lord still wanted there to be a king. And so we promised to Abram that he would have kings. And that through, Genesis 49, through Jacob's son Judah, that line of the kings would come to Israel. Now, closer to our time here in 1 Samuel, in, Je- in Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 17, the Lord spoke through Moses of Israel's coming king. What did Moses say to the Israelites? You know, the day to come, you're going to have a king. What was the king not to be like? Deuteronomy 17. 
The Lord through Moses the Israelite said that when you enter the promised land, you're going to have a king. What was he not to be like, first and foremost? Anybody remember some of those details there? He's not to be like the world's kings. And he gave examples of that. Don't have, the king should not have too many chariots. He shouldn't be a warmonger, right? He shouldn't, uh, he shouldn't be a king. Uh, we would use the term today, the military-industrial complex, right? Uh, this, this king shouldn't be into that. But of course, we see that eventually the king would be. He shouldn't have excessive horses. He shouldn't have excessive wives. And he should not hoard up for himself silver and gold, right? Where'd the gold go at Fort Knox, right? The king took it all in these days. That's what the Lord was saying. The king was going to hoard for himself all the silver and gold. The king of Israel should not be like that. That's what the world's kings are like. And so they entered the promised land and the various uh, tribes scattered. We saw that last Lord's Day in, in, in the book of Judges. They scattered throughout the land of promise on both sides of the Jordan River, all the way to the north, all the way to the south. But we read at the end of Judges last Sunday, chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. So they're in the promised land, they all have their allotments, they're still fighting for it in, in some places. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now in the Hebrew Bible, the very next book is Samuel. I mentioned this last Sunday. In the English Bible, we have the Judges, then Ruth, because Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges, and then Samuel. Uh, but in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes much later. It comes uh, right after Proverbs, in fact. But in the Hebrew Bible, we have Judges. There's no king. The very next book is Samuel. And in English, we have first and second. We split it in half, first and second. So the first half of Samuel, what we call First Samuel, it's all about the transition from the Judges to a king in Israel. First, with Israel's desire for a worldly king, and then with the Lord's desire for a king after his own heart. So we're going to transition now from judges to kings. But this is what God told Father Abraham way back when. Kings are going to come from you. This is what he told our patriarch uh, Jacob, that the, the, the line of Judah was going to be the line of the kings. The scepter should not depart from him until... Uh, that great promise of that one to come uh, should come. And so Samuel transitions us from judges to kings, and we see in that transitional period, we see Israel's desire for a king, their kind of king, and then we see most of all God's desire and God's kind of king. So just notice Samuel, first of all, he's also a transitional figure. And in chapters 1 and 2, we have the details of his birth. So in chapters 1 and 2, just have your Bible open there and kind of thumb around with me. Uh, Elkanah, that's, that's this man, he had two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Peninnah had multiple sons, we learn here. Multiple sons. How many sons at this point in the story does Hannah have? Right, Settle, she has none. No sons. And this reminds us, this reminds us that there were other matriarchs and other mothers in the faith that passed down to us God's promises, who also were barren, who also did not have children. And for example, uh, here we have Peninnah, who's provoking, we read, provoking Hannah. Every single year they go up to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices. Peninnah has all these sons going up with her, this sort of train of sons 
uh, and Hannah has none, and Peninnah is provoking Hannah, reminds us of Hagar and Sarah. It should remind us of Hagar and Sarah, where Hagar has a son, Ishmael, and, and there is Sarah with none, and uh, there was that provoking, there was that strife, that tension that existed between them. Every year, Elkanah would take his family to Shiloh. That's the town where the tabernacle was set up at that time. And they would bring sacrifices and offerings to God. And he would, as a good faithful Israelite, take the sacrificial animals and he would apportion them and he would give Peninnah and her sons uh, animals and sacrificial pieces to take up to the tabernacle, to the priests, to offer and to worship and to make vows and promises and, uh, and to give thanks to the Lord. But he would always give to Hannah a double portion. She got twice the amount of sacrificial animals. Why? The text tells us there uh, that he loved her. It's because he loved her. And, and, like, uh, and like all husbands, right, we have big egos. And he says, you know, why do you weep? Uh, why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more than 10 sons? Right? It's, it's a good husband, right? It's a good husband. He thinks of himself more highly than he ought. Am I not better, right, than my than my three sons? Uh, well, I guess not, right? I guess not. So he loved her and he gave her a double portion. And this happens year after year after year after year. And Hannah, we see in verses 10 through 15, she's, she's pouring out her heart in prayer. She was deeply distressed. She prayed, she wept bitterly, and she makes this vow. Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. That's what she says there. If you give me a son, if you look at my affliction, that's language that comes right from the story of Leah uh, back again in the, in the ancient times. If you look at my affliction uh, and you remember me and you don't forget me, uh, but you will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. Now, what, what is that? No razor touching his head. What is that in the Old Testament? That's the Nazarite, right? Uh, now, what's interesting is that uh, in the, in the Nazarite vow was a, a, a man made that vow, and then he did all, this, all these things like shaving his head uh, and then letting his hair grow. But in this case, we have Hannah making the vow on behalf of her unborn, yet to even be conceived, son, just like Samson's mother, Manoah, uh, or the wife of Manoah, excuse me, in Judges chapter 13. So a lot of these uh, Old Testament ideas are, are all kind of coming in and being summed up here uh, in Hannah. So she, uh, she conceives, we see that. She conceives and uh, notice that it was the Lord who remembered her, right? She's, she's praying there and, and the Lord gives her uh, this son. She conceives, verse 20, uh, she calls his name Samuel for she said, I have asked, him for, uh, for, uh, I've asked for him from the Lord. Uh, so he's called Samuel. Notice how she responds, um, or I should say, notice it's the Lord, right? It's the Lord who is very directly involved in, her, uh, in, 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 uh, in his conception within his mother Hannah, verse, uh, verse uh, 20, when she conceives. Uh, and it's the Lord who's doing this. Uh, we've seen this uh, throughout. Now, she responds in chapter 2, uh, which is this great prayer of Hannah, this really amazing and beautiful prayer of Hannah. And it reminds us of Mary's prayer in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. In fact, if you read... Uh, the prayer of Hannah at the dedication of her son and the thankfulness that she had uh, for the Lord giving her a son, it, it, it eventually comes into a, a reality with the prayer of Mary, uh, her Magnificat, uh, my soul magnifies the Lord uh, in Luke chapter 1. So isn't it 
isn't usually the case. It's interesting. So she's asking for, year after year after year, she's asking for a son. She wants to lend him to the Lord. She wants to give him to the Lord, devote him to the Lord. She has a son. Uh, the first thing she does is she prays. She gives thanks. She remembers that God remembered her and her prayers. But isn't it for us usually the case uh, that we pray for something, and then when that something comes, we forget to pray again? Right? So we're really good at asking for stuff. We give lots of supplications and even intercessions for other people. Lord this and Lord that and help him, help her, help me. But when that help actually comes, we, we don't give thanks, right? We don't respond. And we see in Hannah this beautiful pattern of asking God uh, for things, even pouring out your heart year after year for, th- for, a, for a particular prayer. Uh, and when that prayer is answered, she gives thanks, right? So we have a beautiful picture here of gratitude to God in prayer. So she dedicates Samuel. That's the end of chapter one. Uh, she sets him aside like a Nazarite and she drops him off uh, sort of like a, like a mom drops off a kid at daycare at the tabernacle of all places. Interesting. She drops him off at the tabernacle. And what is he doing there? Look at chapter two, verse 11. Chapter two, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy, this is Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So this little guy already was serving God in the house of God. There was no temple yet. It was the portable tabernacle of the wilderness. Now it's set up in Shiloh. Notice any problems with that? Samuel's ministering to the Lord in the the, the tabernacle uh, in the presence of Eli, the high priest. Any problems with that? I like pointing out the problems, uh, the, the struggles, the, the, the tensions in the Bible. There's a problem with this. What's the problem? Which tribe, if you're paying attention, which tribe does Elkanah uh, belong to? You see that uh, there in the very uh, opening uh, of the chapter uh, that he is from the tribe of Ephraim, right? What do the, the Old Testament laws say about the tribe of Ephraim and the tabernacle and the temple sacrifices. Nothing, right? It says nothing. The tribe of Levi, and we saw in Numbers that there are lots of Levites, but not all Levites are priests, but all Levites do something associated with the tabernacle, the temple. But here's this boy who's in the tabernacle, in the presence of the high priest, ministering. That's a way of saying he's serving God. And how do you serve God as a priest? You offered up sacrifices, you prayed, you put incense on the altar, uh, you made sure that there was enough oil for the lampstand, the menorah, you put the showbread out every single week and you even ate it, uh, ate of it. You went in and out of the tabernacle. But he's the wrong tribe. He's not a Levite. He shouldn't be there. But he is. But he is. The law said nothing about Ephraim uh, and the tabernacle. Only the Levites were to have this role. Now, I mentioned that all the worshipers could go and offer their offerings right there at the very front of the tabernacle, that, that first great curtain that divided the courtyard from the holy place. You could go that far. But you could not go into the actual structure itself. That's the holy place. And for sure, not the holy of holies. But here he was, ministering to the Lord in the tabernacle. This reminds us that these ceremonial types of laws... Uh, in the Old Testament, these laws about sacrifice and tabernacles and priests and so forth, this reminds us that these various laws, we call them ceremonial laws, 
liturgical laws. They were meant to teach Israel at that time, at that place. They were like children who were being taught their ABCs, their one, two, threes. That's what the Apostle Paul says. That's what Rabbi Saul says in Galatians 4, that they were taught by the law uh, as a tutor. The law was a tutor, a teacher to them as little children to bring them to the Messiah. So it just reminds us that these, these ceremonial laws at times get bended a little bit uh, and even broken. The moral laws don't. Thou shalt uh, have no other gods before me. Uh, thou shalt not steal and so forth. The moral laws of God uh, reflect God's eternal character. Those laws don't change. That's why those laws still apply today. But the ceremonial laws like priests and sacrifices and holy places like tabernacles and temples, those laws at times can be bent and even broken because they're only ceremonial. They're teaching the Israelites like a child. And it's also showing us here, there's a shadow here, there's something coming. There's someone coming who's not the tribe of Levi who's going to offer up once and for all a sacrifice for, to end all sacrifice. I won't mention his name. I won't mention his name, okay? But there is someone coming who's going to do this very thing. He's going to, in fact, by his, by his sacrifice, by his death, wink, wink, he's going to tear that curtain in two and allow everyone to enter in by faith. Now, in chapter 3, we have his call. So Samuel, we have his birth, and you have his call. Uh, the context is mentioned there uh, in verse 1. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no vision. This is how the Lord said in Numbers chapter 12, uh, how he revealed himself to prophets in visions. But to Moses, I speak face to face. But the prophets, then I speak in visions. In other words, the text is telling us there in chapter 3 uh, that there was uh, no prophet uh, in those days. Uh, there, were these, this, this, there were these men of God, this man of God. We see these sort of unnamed shadowy figures. They are prophet, uh, prophets, but there is no prophetic office, we might say. The Lord's word was rare. It was rare. Again, we read about Samuel in chapter 3, his call uh, to be a prophet. Uh, where is he again in the story? Where is he again? Where is he? The tabernacle, right? The temple, yeah. This is the, the, this, the, eventually the temple, but the tabernacle here. Um, and he's, he's in there, and the text tells us that he's near where the ark was. Look at that in verse 3. Where the ark of God was, the holy of holies. He's, he's right there on the precipice of the holy of holies. As near as he can be to God. Serving God day and night in his temple. Again, only the Levites were permitted to go there. Again, there's just a shadow here uh, that one day uh, other people other than Levites are going to have access. Uh, they're going to have confidence and boldness to go into the Holy of Holies and to offer up to God sacrifices and prayers because of the sacrifice of one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's coming. And three times at night, Samuel and, Le and, 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 uh, and Eli, the high priest, are asleep. Samuel uh, is called, but he doesn't know yet that it's God who's calling him. Samuel, Samuel, and here I am. And he goes to Eli thinking that Eli called him three times, right? When the Bible says something three times, it's normally pretty important. So three times God is speaking, and, and Eli finally kind of wises up and wakes up. He's an old man at this time. He's tired. Uh, he kind of comes to his senses and says, it's got to be the Lord. And the next time, the next time you hear that voice, you say, here I am, and, and that's what happens. The Lord appears, we're told, in verse 10, notice, the Lord came and stood. 
the Lord came into the tabernacle and stood there calling over little Samuel as he was asleep. This is what we call a theophany, the presence of God. And I've been pointing this out all throughout the story of the Old Testament, the presence of God time and time again. God in his very own presence appears and shows up before the Lord Jesus Christ enters this world. We already have him there in the tabernacle calling Samuel as a prophet. And he goes off into his ministry. Look at the end of chapter 3, verse number 19. He grows up. The Lord was with him. That's presence language. The Lord's presence. And the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. It all came true, in other words. And all Israel, from Dan, that's all the way to the north, to Beersheba, all the way to the south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And notice that again, verse 21. Again, the Lord appeared at Shiloh meaning the tabernacle. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word came, of Samuel came. And just, again, the, the, there are these phrases in the Bible that we overlook and they're strange and, they're, and they seem, sometimes they don't really make sense to us or we just don't really put too much thought into it. Notice the Lord appeared for the Lord revealed himself by What? How did the Lord reveal himself? By the word of what, though? Of the Lord. Remember in Genesis chapter 18 when the Lord, uh, those, those three men appeared to Abraham and Sarah at their tent? Remember that story? Those three guys who showed up? Two of them were angels. And those angels went down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and one of them stood there and was the Lord himself. And that Lord who stood there said that he, the Lord, was going to send fire from heaven from the Lord from heaven. Really strange. How does the Lord reveal himself by the word of the Lord? He's not just speaking of words here. He's speaking of what we understand in the fullness of God's revelation. This is, this is Trinitarian language. This is the Lord, God himself, who's revealing himself by his Son, by the word of the Lord. The Lord by the word. Uh, the Lord by the Lord. Notice that. The Lord revealed himself by the Lord is basically what he's saying. How? Because it's the, it's the Son before his incarnation, calling Samuel to be a prophet to reveal the word to Israel. So his ministry there, he appears by the word, and the word one day would become flesh and dwell among his people. His ministry, notice he's not just a prophet, but in chapter 7, just quickly to skip, notice he's also a judge. So remember what we said last Sunday, go back to Judges and look at uh, the pattern and the various things about Samuel and the judges. So Samuel is a prophet who preaches and who speaks the word. He's also a judge. The judges were those men uh, and women at times uh, who served God like kings, like ru temporary rulers until there was going to be a king. And so he preaches repentance. He calls them to put away their idols, turn to the Lord. That's what repentance is, to turn away from ourselves and our sins to the Lord. Uh, but also in chapter 7, verse 9, he offers sacrifice. So he's ministering as a child. We're not told explicitly, but now we're told explicitly that he offers up sacrifices. So he's a prophet. He's a judge slash, we might say, a proto-king. He's also acting like a priest here, even though, again, he's not a Levite. And he's certainly not a priest. He doesn't even have an authorized role to carry a tent peg of the tabernacle, but there he is offering sacrifices to the Lord. He's a picture to us, a type and a shadow to us. 
of one day, again, an, uh, a final anointed one will come and he will be all three at once, prophet, priest, and king. Oh, Jesus, we sing one of our hymns. Oh, Jesus, shepherd, guardian, friend, my prophet, priest, and king. My Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. My prophet, priest, and king. So here is Samuel as a type and a shadow and a picture to us of the anointed one, the Savior, uh, all together. And so he's this extraordinary figure. He performs prophetical functions and priestly functions and kingly duties, all transitioning Israel from judges to the kings. And then chapter 8 brings us to their desire for a king. Notice the context again. Samuel's getting old. And he appoints his two sons, Joel and Abijah, as judges. Who appointed those two sons as judges? Samuel, who didn't appoint them as judges? The Lord. (laughs) The Lord didn't, right? Every time a judge rises up in the book of Judges, it's the Lord. Here, Samuel kind of treats it, so he's a type of Christ, but we're also seeing his failures. He appoints his own sons to be judges. Uh, And what's the problem with that? Look at verse 3. Chapter 8, verse 3. What's the problem with that? His sons are just like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are worthless sons. They uh, do not walk in his ways. They turned aside after gain. They turn aside after gain. Once again, we've seen this so many times already in the Old Testament. There's this, this very, very, very sad pattern of... One generation serving God, the next one doesn't. One doesn't, the next one does. There's this sad pattern of the Israelites who are brought out of Egypt. They see the Red Sea. They cross it on dry ground. They see all the miracles and signs, and they all die in the wilderness for unbelief. But their sons and daughters who were born in the wilderness, who did not see the Red Sea split in two, they believe and they enter the promised land. That's the book of Joshua. But then that, that generation we read uh, at the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges, that generation that was born in the promised land, whose parents believed, that generation did not know the Lord. And here we have that same pattern, but yet on a microcosm level. Here's this one man, Samuel, whose whole life is dedicated and devoted and given over to the Lord. He's lent to God. And he serves God day and night in his temple. He does things like prophets, priests, and kings do. And when he gets old, his sons don't do those things. Again, we see this pattern. And again, as your pastor, just to point this thing, these, these things out, this is utterly important for us. We know this, but we have to hear it. And we've heard it a, a, probably four or five weeks in a row because the text is bringing this up. We've got to say it again. We have to say it again. Uh, so to us as parents, but I also included all of us who our kids are out of the house. So all the spiritual grandparents in the congregation too. What are you willing to do to ensure the faith and the Christian way of life will be passed down through the covenant line to your children and to your grandchildren and to the church's children and the church's grandchildren? What are you willing to do? Now, ultimately, it's up to the Lord, but the Lord uses means. Maybe Samuel was too busy. He didn't teach his kids properly. We're not told that. Maybe the, the, the generation in the wilderness that came into the promised land, they were so busy fighting battles and taking their promised land for themselves that their kids were neglected. Maybe that happened. We're not sure. But what are we willing to do to invest our time, our talent, and our treasure to give the faith, to pass the faith down from one generation to another? That's what we have to do. We see that pattern here again. Samuel's very own sons don't serve the Lord. 
And so Israel then requests a king, verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 5. Uh, they request a king just like the nations. Samuel's offended by this. The Lord says, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. Give them what they want. And so Samuel goes on in verse 10 to 18 to list all the ways this coming king uh, is going to neglect uh, and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, be a punishment to the Israelites. He's going to conscript your sons and daughters into being warriors, to riding on chariots, to building chariots, to running next, on, alongside of chariots with spears. He's going to take all your daughters. They're, gonna, they're the ones that are going to make your clothes. They're going to make your food for you. He's going to conscript your children. They're all going to be in service to him in servitude. He's going to multiply chariots and foot soldiers, just like Deuteronomy 17 said the king was not to do. He will take all the best of your fields for himself and his servants. And also, and also, verse 17, he's going to do what all rulers like to do. There are two things that are inevitable in life, death and taxes. He's going to conscript your kids, they're all going to die in his service, and he's going to tax you. 10% just for him, right? He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves, right? All the libertarians in the house say amen to that one, right? So, no biggie, they say, though. No biggie. We're in. Bring them on. We need them. But again, the Lord had told them way back when in the days of Moses that they were going to ask for a king like the nations, and that's exactly what they do. They ask for a king just like the nations. You see, the people of God, again, just again, another sad thing we, we can continue to see is that the people of God want to be like the world. The church, we might say in, in, those, in those terms, wants to be like the world. They want a king like the nations. Uh, and they want rulers and leaders like the nations. And this is the same, the same sin is co- coursed through their veins just like it does yours and mine. This is, we, we should not, I never sit back and say, you know, but we, but we have it all figured out here, right? We are reformed. We have, uh, we have a church order that lays out how elders and deacons and ministers are to be called and trained. And, and, and we, have, uh, we have confessions of faith that tell us exactly how things are to be done. We should never look down our noses and say, well, that's not going to be us, right? The same thing happened to them and the same thing can very easily happen to us. We have to be, always be on guard and always guard the faith and not want leaders to be like the world. Not want leaders to be like the world. Now, that brings us to Saul. So there's this desire for a king, and then, well, who's this king that they wanted? They didn't know his name yet, but the Lord had one in mind. Uh, You want a king like that? I'm going to give you a king like that. And there he is, Saul. Uh, He's Israel's king. You see that in chapters 9 through 15. Uh, He's chosen as a king. Now, again, if you read the story closely and uh, you're paying attention there, notice verse 1 there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. This is Saul's father. So which tribe, uh, from which tribe does Saul come? The tribe of what? Benjamin. What did Genesis 49 say about the line of the kings? Which tribe? So did the Bible say anything up to this point? Did God reveal anything up to this point about the tribe of Benjamin being the line of kings? 
No, no. But just like with Samuel, we have this sort of strange, extraordinary thing going on. Uh, Judah was the line of the kings, but the point is that they wanted a king like the nations, and they're going to get one like the nations. His father, Kish, was a very wealthy man, the text tells us. Saul was everything you wanted in a leader. Tall, dark, handsome, right? Tall, dark, handsome. I'm not so dark these days. It's, uh, it's too cold outside. And there's no sun, right? So the struggle's real, right? Struggle's real. <laughs> there's no sun these days. Uh, but he's tall, dark, and handsome. And that's, that's what they wanted, right? He looked like a king. He acted like a king, right? That's what the world has. They have these big kings. We need a big king to, to fight our battles. Then he's anointed in chapter 10. And then he's proclaimed to be the king. Now, notice in chapter 10, verses 18 uh, through 19, when he's proclaimed as king, look at what the Lord says. This should be like the most joyous occasion. But the Lord says, Samuel, through Samuel the prophet, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. So he points them back in the history of salvation. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us, etc., etc." And they do acclaim him, verse 24, long live the king. So they wanted a king like the nations, and that's exactly what God gave them, because they rejected not Samuel, they rejected the Lord. Uh, and then Saul does go out, and he does great things. Chapter 11 describes that he, win, uh, he wins very many battles, and he actually unifies the people and the tribes. Don't forget, the tribes were on both sides of the Promised Land, on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and also the western side, all the way to the north, all the way to the south. They were spread out. But yet Saul had this unification plan, uh, chapter 11. We see that in verse 12 and following, uh, that he does this. But he has this strategy uh, of fear to do this. He uses fear to unite them, uh, to cause them uh, to come into the battle. Uh, the people said to Samuel, Who is that that says, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put him to death, uh, and so forth. So Saul's henchmen uh, have this fear, strategy of fear. Uh, we'll put them to death if you don't want Saul to be the king. And they go out and win battles. But in chapter 13, things go, begin to go downhill. They begin to go downhill, just like we would expect them to be uh, going downhill uh, since he's not really the king after God's own heart. Samuel told Saul uh, before a certain battle in chapter 13 that he had to wait seven days. He had to wait until Samuel was going to come so that he would offer up sacrifices to the Lord uh, and thanksgiving offerings before the battle started. Now, seven days is a long time when you have an army <clears throat> that's aligned against you, and that's on the other side of the battlefield. But Samuel said, wait, as a prophet of God, wait. But the story says that the people begin to become impatient, and they kind of start wandering away into their own ways. Sound familiar to like another Old Testament story? Right? When the cats away, the mice will play. Moses is up in the mountain. People of God down below. You know, where's this Moses that you said is going to lead us into the promised land? He's not here. You know, make some gods for us. And then Aaron does that, and we know the story. The same thing. They're impatient. Right? They're impatient. And so some of the army begins to leave the battlefield, and, and Saul sees what's going on, and he takes matters into his own hands. 
And we read that he offers up burnt offerings. He offers up burnt offerings. Again, only the priests could offer up burnt offerings. So why, why was Samuel allowed to do it and why Saul not? God unjust? God unfair? No. Both of them technically, ceremonially, could not offer up sacrifices. The difference is that the Lord had chosen Samuel and Saul was chosen by the people. He was their king and so he takes the prerogatives of the priests upon himself and he offers up sacrifices in an unauthorized way. And then that leads to chapter 15, his rejection. His kingship doesn't last long, at least uh, uh, with some sort of blessing and some semblance of victory. The Lord rejects him. And so Samuel, the Lord through Samuel, commands Saul again in chapter 15 to fight another battle and to devote to destruction the Amalekites. Remember the story of Amalek uh, and uh, this king in this, this region that did great damage to the Israelites uh, as they came up out of Egypt. And the Lord says, I'm going to finally finish them off. So devote to destruction. That's a way of, of, of setting them all aside as the Lord's. Wipe them out. They belong to the Lord. Uh, and they are to be taken, uh, taken down uh, in God's justice and in God's righteousness. And so they go win the battle. But what does Saul do? Again, he takes matters into his own hands and he takes King Agog, their king, uh, and he takes him uh, into his tent and all the best of the animals. That's in verse number nine. So he doesn't devote all things to destruction like he was supposed to in obedience to God's command. No, he, he has some pity upon the king and he takes some of the better animals for himself. And then comes Samuel, the Lord, through Samuel, speaking those very fateful, very important words for, the, for, the, for what these words come up multiple times in the, in, the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where Samuel says in verse 22, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Right? Does, does God delight more in sacrifice or in obedience? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And because of that, verse 23 because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So Saul was Israel's desired king like the nations. He's a tragic example of what happens when the people of God choose leaders on their own terms and not on God's terms. It's a tragic example of that. And that brings us finally to David. He's anointed as a little boy in chapter 16. The Lord speaks to Samuel that says, and the Lord says, I will lead you to this king, and I have provided for myself a king. Uh, so we see that the difference between Israel's desire uh, and the Lord. I provided for myself, verse number one, uh, a king uh, among the sons of Jesse. And so he comes to Jesse's house, and he's got all these sons, and of course, just like the Israelites chose Saul on the basis of his good looks and his height and so forth, so Samuel sees the firstborn son, and he no doubt looks the part, he he looks like he's uh, the, the perfect character, right, for this story. Uh, and the Lord says, don't look upon. Don't look upon the outward. You see the, you see the outward. I see what's inside. Don't choose him just based on that. No, he's not, he's not the king. I rejected him. The Lord sees not as a man sees, verse number seven. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. And so Jesse says, fine, I'll go to the second son. Right? The next oldest, no doubt, uh, uh, again, looking the part. And he goes down the line of all these sons, and the Lord says, no, 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 no. And Samuel is flabbergasted. And the Lord says, there's one, or yeah, he has, the Lord says, there's someone else. And he asks Jesse, you know, do you have another son? Yeah, 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 we have, this, this, we have our youngest, my youngest son. He's out there uh, in the fields. He's a shepherd, right? He's a shepherd. I mean, what about these, these sons? Man, I've got seven sons. These guys are what you're looking for. No, no, no. The Lord says there's someone else. But he's a shepherd. You know, what's he going to do? He's this, this young boy. He comes to David in verse 12 of chapter 16. And we read that when he takes his little horn of oil and he anoints David in the midst of his brothers... The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then in verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So he's anointed as king, but yet he's not actually functioning as king. In the rest of, his, the rest of Saul's life, at least, he's going to be in that tension and that struggle too. And that brings us to that great chapter 17, David versus Goliath. And Goliath, of course, described there as this, this giant of a man, uh, this region of Gath. This is where we read about the Anakim and uh, all these great giants, these warrior men, uh, where they lived, uh, and they, uh, they had this, this champion, this one, uh, this one warrior of all their warriors who would go and fight battles for them, and at times we would have uh, mano a mano, uh, man upon man type of fighting, and whichever, whichever champion wins the battle, that means that their god was more victorious than the other god, and so one man would fight one man, and that would solve the, solve the, solve the fight. Uh, and in this case, the same thing, and so he's defying, and he's and he's crying out uh, to, the, to the lines of the Israelite soldiers about their Lord being nothing. You know, no, one's, no one has the courage to come out and fight. No one has uh, the spirit of, of their God in them enough to fight against him. And he does this day after day after day. Forty days, look at that. Forty days, verse 16, the Philistine came forward, took his stand morning and evening. You know, this guy was taunting, right? This, this is like, you know, we... Back in the day, at least, when boxing was like a thing on TV. Uh, now it's UFC, right? But the, they, they get together for the, for the media day, and they stand there, you know, face to face. And they, you know, they take their photos and whatnot. But then they have their little, meet, they have their little interview, and they, and they take jabs at one another, right? And they, and, they, and they mock each other. They make fun of each other. You know, they, they diss each other's moms sometimes uh, in these interviews. Uh, just to hype up the battle, right? To hype up the fight. That's what Goliath's doing here. You know, none of you is a man. Get out here and fight. And David has to take some food to his brothers in the front line, because that's all he, you know, was good for, according to his dad. And he does this, and he hears this, and he's like, why is no one stepping up? And he wants to, and Saul's like, you can't do this. You know, who are you? He finally convinces Saul to let him go fight the battle, and Saul says, we've got to put my armor on. Of course, it doesn't fit. It's too heavy, so forth. He says, I don't need this. He takes his little staff, verse 40. He takes five little smooth stones. And he tells Goliath that he comes against, that Goliath is coming against the people of God with spears, but he's coming against him in the name of his God, the Lord of hosts. And of course, we know the story. Verse 51, after he slings him down with a little stone in his forehead. David doesn't even have a sword. He has to take Goliath's sword and chops off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they 
fled. So here's David, the anointed king, cutting off the head of this, this champion of the gods of Gath. What does this sound like? An anointed king cutting off the head of this satanically inspired champion. This sounds like Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? That there, was going to be, that there was going to come a seed, a son one day, uh, an anointed one one day, who was going to crush the serpent's head. And we see in David a very picture of that. And this is what Jesus came to do. We were talking in this past week at our men's group about how Jesus has already conquered Satan. He came, as Matthew, uh, in Matthew 12, Jesus said, He came to bind the strong man, to bind the strong man, hand and foot, he told his disciples to go out and preach and to cast out demons. And when the disciples came back, they couldn't believe the things that they did, that God did through them. What did Jesus say in Luke 10? I saw Satan fall out of heaven when you preached the gospel. He fell out of heaven like lightning. And the apostle John later on was given a vision in Revelation 20 of Satan being bound and put into a pit with a lid over it. Why? so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Why cannot the devil in this age deceive the nations? How is it that he is bound and that he is uh, forbidden from deceiving the world? It's because the gospel must go to every corner and every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what God says is going to happen. The gospel conquers. The gospel wins victories every single day. Why? Because Jesus Christ has already conquered the devil. He's already, like David, cut off the head of the serpents. And so we are called to go, as the apostles were and as the churches, to go. And wherever we find ourselves, to preach the gospel, to teach the good news every single day. Why? Because we're confident in the victory of God. Christ has already won the victory. He's already done all the work. It's our job to just simply go and mop up. Right? He's the Marines, we're the army. They went in. They go in first, the army comes in second. Jesus has already won the victory. It's our job just to clean up, to spread the word, to spread the good news. So this Old Testament and the stories of it, like Samuel, very strange to us at times as Americans with the central figure of the king, the king. Yet God, in the beginning, I said, created us to rule. The problem is we want to rule and have dominion on our own terms, according to our own desires. And the Bible calls that what? Calls that sin. Calls that sin. We've rebelled against God. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin separates us. Our rebellion separates us from the life that God desires for us. We were made in the beginning to have fellowship and communion closeness with our God. Instead, we've chosen disunion and separation. And 1 Samuel comes into the, into the mix. It's important for you and for me because it shows you and me that a king is coming who is going to rule justly and graciously. He's going to set all things right and make all things new one day. He begins that work already in our hearts. When we come to Christ with our sins, He begins to recreate us from the inside out. He accepts us, as that's what we call our justification, and He begins to 
wipe us clean. We call that our sanctification. He recreates us from the inside out. And one day he's going to end and bring all things to their true goal in a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. And we will live with him forever in that place. Amen? I invite you, rebellious sinner, I invite you to come to Christ today to recognize that God has for thousands upon thousands of years made promises, prophecies of a coming Savior, and every single one of them came true in the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Lord. He came to die for sinners. He came to rise and conquer the devil so that we might have new life now and that he might more and more clean us up, sanctify us, One day he will glorify us. He will renew our bodies, our minds, our souls, all that it means to be a human. He will will renew us completely. We will see him face to face and live with him forever. 1 Samuel tells you that. There's a king coming. And by the way, he's already come. His name is Jesus. Come to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Bring all your questions to him. Bring all your sins to him. Bring all your doubts to him. And trust me, he will forgive you and he will help you and enlighten you and he will guide you on the path of life. He will guide you. He will lead you. He will save you. Let's pray. Our great and gracious King, we come to you this morning again. and We bow before you. We humble ourselves in your presence. And we ask now as we come to this Lord's table and and, uh, conclude our service uh, that you would feed our hearts and minds Uh, Feed our souls with the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. Assure us that you are our King and that you have already won the victory on the cross and in the empty tomb. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen.